So when I first started on my journey as a follower of Jesus, when I was a teenager, <clears throat> I had a conception that I would consider now to be bad theology. Okay? What I thought was that my ultimate hope as a believer in Jesus was that when I died, I would, or my soul would, go to heaven to live with Jesus forever. Now, you may be thinking, wait, that's what I believe. <laughs> that's bad theology? Yes, I'm here to tell you that is incorrect. And in fact, I want to challenge that belief today with a vision of the future and a future hope that is even so much more, uh, even so much better than that. <clears throat> now, this belief that our souls will go to heaven to be with Jesus when we die forever is very persistent in the church. In fact, I was just with a pastor recently who was using lots of terminology like in heaven and when we go to heaven and and all of this after we die and so forth. And uh, one illustration of the persistence of this belief can be uh, seen in a very, uh, well, what used to be a very popular hymn in uh, Christian worship called I'll Fly Away. Have you ever heard this hymn? It goes, when the shadows of this life have gone, I'll fly away. Like a bird from prison bars has flown, I'll fly away. Just a few more weary days, and then I'll fly away to a land where joy shall never end. I'll fly away. Do you see in this vision the idea that our bodies are like a prison, right? From which our souls must be freed like a bird in order to go and live a happier, better existence in another place in the future forever. And so this can be seen in lots of terminology that we use in, the, in Christianity, like, um, you know, uh, when we go to heaven, or I will see this person in heaven, or, um, uh, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> what I want to say about this is two things. First, that there's actually something very right about this hope, okay? So I want to clarify that, in fact, the Bible does teach us that after we die, immediately after we die, when our bodies are in the grave, that we, we are, in some sense, with Jesus in that moment. Okay? Um, and that should be comforting to us, that when our bodies are lying there, we are with Jesus. This is what Paul tells us in Philippians. But... What exactly that is like, how that works, we actually know almost nothing from the New Testament. In fact, it's discussed hardly at all, right? In fact, the most common way of speaking about our state as believers when we die or in our bodies in the grave is that we have fallen asleep in Christ. But, to talk about being with Jesus when we die is absolutely right, and we should comfort each other with that hope, right? But what I actually want to give you is a better hope, right? Because there's hope not just for some immaterial aspect of us to go and be with Jesus after we die. 
there's actually hope beyond the grave. Because if we fall asleep in Christ, as the New Testament often talks about it, when we die, the point is, is that one day we will wake up. And this is what we call resurrection. And this is the hope that the New Testament talks at length about. The hope that one day our bodies will actually rise from the grave, that we'll be given new life, not just an immaterial aspect of us, but our whole selves will be given new life to live in a new creation that God makes. And this will be the ultimate victory over death. So I want to start today with a little hot take. And that is that we should just stop using the terminology of going to heaven. Okay? I'm not going to say that we should use the, stop using the terminology of <clears throat> experiencing some dimension of heaven in the future, a new heavens and a new earth kind of thing, and we'll talk about how this works in a minute, but the idea of we're going to go to heaven when we die and so forth, we should just stop using that terminology. Instead, if you want to and we should, if we want to comfort each other and talk about our state after death when our bodies are in the grave before the time of resurrection on the last day, we should talk about being with Jesus, or we should talk about being asleep in Christ. Okay? Can we do that? All right. So now what I would like to do, though, is I would like to delve into the nature of this resurrection that, that is our hope from a passage in the letter of Paul to the believers in Corinth in the first century CE. So in your handout, you should find this passage. It's 1 Corinthians 15. If uh, you don't, if you want to see um, a couple of other verses that I'll be reading, you can also turn to it in your Bible or in a Bible app, this whole chapter. But this is where we're going to be uh, dealing with this question and I want to warn you at the beginning that good theology is often theology in which we tread on mystery, okay? And it's often difficult to understand. And in fact, as I've been mulling over this passage the last week, um, I would say that there's a lot in here I'm struggling to understand. But I think it's more important for us to start to delve into the question and start to understand it than for me to avoid it because I don't fully understand it, all right? But I want to warn you that we're going to be swimming out of our comfortable lagoon of bad theology into the open sea of mystery. All right, so a little context first. Um, it seems that in the, among the believers in Corinth, in this church, there were some people who denied the reality of a future resurrection of believers. Okay? They said... Paul says, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Now, um, it seems to me, based on what we might expect from um, uh, common beliefs among pagan, like Roman, uh, Roman and Greek religion of the time, that it was very difficult for people who had converted out of paganism into Christianity to accept the idea that there would be a future resurrection of the body, right? This was a hard thing for them to understand. It was more common, much more common, in Greek and, and Roman religion to think of 
the afterlife in terms of like an immaterial, um, you know, uh, continuing on of the spirit or soul of a person. This is actually funny because this is pretty similar to what a lot of Christians think today, right? So when these Corinthians were saying that there was no resurrection of the dead, it seems likely that they were somehow denying that there would be a bodily resurrection, and maybe they were thinking more in terms of like an, uh, a disembodied immaterial afterlife. But what Paul says is, um, this is not what we believe as Christians. In fact, the central tenet, one of the central tenets of Christianity is that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. But what's more than that is that Jesus himself being raised from the dead is actually an advance instance of a general reality to come in the future. In other words, Jesus is the future resurrection. His resurrection was the future resurrection coming to be in the present moment. You understand that? So Paul writes in verse 20, which is not in your handout, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, in other words, he is the first one of all, uh, you know, of those who, are die- who have died, who are followers of him, or in him. He is the first one, the first fruits, to be raised from the dead. For as by a man came death, that is by Adam, the first uh, human, by a man, that is Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So what he's saying is, if you receive the idea of Jesus as resurrected, as part of the gospel, then you must necessarily also recognize the reality of a future resurrection of all who have fallen asleep in him, right? Because he is the firstfruits of that reality. Okay, now I want to get to the meat of our discussion today. So this is going to begin in verse 35. And in this section, Paul deals with an objection to the idea that there is a future resurrection. The objection is that these people cannot imagine what kind of body, a resurrected body that somehow exists forever, might be like. And in fact, I have trouble imagining that myself, right? <clears throat> and so Paul deals with this, uh, this objection by trying to describe the nature of the resurrected body. Okay? So here's where we're just rounding the corner of the lagoon into the open sea. He says this in verse 35. <clears throat> but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. Um, and here I think he's indicating that this question is not a genuine one. This is an objection, an ar- argumentative objection to say, I don't believe in a resurrection because of this. He says, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives to it a body, as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. So he starts here with a metaphor. And this metaphor is going to 
uh, he's going to draw it out through a lot of this passage. And I love this metaphor because it's really helping me start to understand the nature of the resurrection. It's the idea that our bodies are like seeds. They're like seeds in a couple of ways. First, they're like seeds because a seed and the plant that comes from the seed uh, look very different. They're very different kinds of entities, yet there's also continuity between them, right? So the seed is uh, the same as the plant in a certain way, but it's also different as the plant that will come from the seed in another way. And so, Paul says, it is with our bodies. Our bodies are like seeds, and they are both continuous with a future body, right? The same as a future body that we have, they will have, and they are also discontinuous or different from a future body that we will have. Also, like seeds, um, there is a process of transformation that looks like kind of like death, right? A seed you put in the ground, you bury it, right? It goes under and then it comes out as something new. And in a similar way, our bodies go through a process of death and then something beyond death, which is this flowering of resurrection. All right, so that's his first point. Our bodies are like seeds. Then he says, in verse 39, for not all flesh is the same. But there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Now, immediately you can see that he's uh, echoing back to the story of creation in Genesis, right? He's using a lot of the same terms, the same categories of like the birds and the fish and the animals and the stars, right? And what he's trying to say, I think, is that God has created a wide variety of kinds of modes of existence in the world, right? He's created, for example, um, well, he's created like um, uh, Saturn and he's created aardvarks and he's created blowfish, right? And all of these um, are, have a, a different kind of composition, a different kind of function, and a different kind of dignity or glory uh, that draws our attention to them and makes us praise God for them, right? For example, you know, the, the glory of Saturn, I don't know, its composition is like uh, of swirling gases or whatever. Is it Saturn? Is that a ga gas planet? Yeah, okay. And then... Um, you know, the glory of the aardvark, you know, is like its ability to dig for ants. Um, and who knows what the glory of a blowfish is. But. Um, but the point is, I think, that Paul's trying to make is that God is capable of creating a wide variety of kinds of bodies or kinds of modes of being, right? And so the idea that there might be another kind of mode out there that God has in his mind, the potential to create, right, to transform us into, is not far-fetched. Do you see that point? Okay. So he comes to verse 42, and he says, 
so it is with the resurrection of the dead. He's going to return now to his metaphor of the seed. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. All right, so what he's saying is, like a seed, we as humans now exist in a certain, what we can say, mode of existence, right? We uh, are characterized in this current mode of existence uh, by being perishable, that is, subject to decay and death. Um, we are also characterized by dishonor, weakness, and what he calls being natural or a natural body. Okay? Now, some of these things, some of these aspects of our mode of existence now are sort of native to ourselves as created beings the way God made us, right? Especially, I think, and we'll talk about this in a minute, the idea of being inhabiting a natural body, right? It's something that God created Adam with. But others of these aspects are things that also characterize our mode of existence because of the introduction of sin into the world. In other words, sin bringing decay and corruption and death, weakness and dishonor, right? So all of this now comprises our experience of existence now as humans in the bodies that we inhabit, in the world that we inhabit. And he says, this is what it's like for us now being a seed. But he gives us a vision now of another kind of mode of existence. Um, the seed sown uh, can then burst forth into something different, which he says can be characterized by being imperishable, right? Being glorious, being powerful, and what he will call being having a spiritual body. All right, so. In what, in what follows here, I'm going to try to parse out these distinctions a little bit in uh, whatever fuzzy ways I kind of can, okay? So, um, all right, hang with me here. One way that I've been trying to understand the distinction between these two modes of being, right? The seed mode that we're in now and then the future mode that we will be at the resurrection is to delve into this idea, as he does, of the distinction between a natural body and a spiritual body. Okay, do you see what he says there? Um, what is, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body in verse 44. And then he continues to explain this idea. He says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. And as was the man of dust, so are also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, some of you are like, I had no idea this was in the Bible. 
but here we are. Okay. Um, so uh, hang with me. So we've got this distinction, right? As this translation translated to between the natural body and the spiritual body, the the seed and what is to come. Now. I think it's kind of helpful to try to understand this in terms of something we've actually talked about in the past uh, here at TCLA, maybe in terms of a distinction between two kinds of dimensions. Okay? So on the one hand, we have what we could call like an earthy or earthly dimension, even though I don't, uh, it's not like if you leave Earth and go to outer space that you exit this dimension, but we'll call it We'll call it like the earthly dimension, which is the dimension in which we currently exist and uh, our senses experience. It's the dimension of our normal everyday experience, right? On the other side, we have what we might call the heavenly dimension, okay? Which is um, a dimension that is unseen to us, but we know exists, right? God and other spirits. Spiritual beings exist in this dimension in some way. And he says that these dimensions are characterized on the one hand. We who inhabit this earthly dimension are in fact earthy or we're made of dust. Right? He says this is characteristic of us. Though we are also made of dust with a, a, a certain animate spark of life. Right? He says that Adam became a living being. Uh, He's dust, but he's a living being, right? Sparked by God as a gift with life. This is actually something, according to Genesis, that animals also share. They are also living beings in the same way. Okay? Um, so this is us. This is our primary mode of existence. On the other hand, he talks about a spiritual body. And Jesus, who exists in this kind of mode of, uh, of existence as a... A, um, as a man from heaven, okay? So in, in some way, a primary mode of existence is in this spiritual or heavenly dimension. Now, I don't know, and I know we're swimming hard right now, uh, I don't know that this is always a distinction between physical and non-physical purely, okay? So that's something we have to worry about or think about, but it is somehow a dimension, uh, a, a distinction of dimensional existence. All right. So, if we as humans exist in this, we are composed of dust with a spark of life given by God. This is our primary mode of existence. We have to add a couple of things to this description of our existence, though. One is that we also know that we as humans grope for some interaction with that other mode of existence or that other dimension, don't we? Right? Um, we, sen we, we seem to have some sense that we can interact beyond this everyday mode and that there, in fact, may be some aspect of us that even exists in that other mode, right? Some people might call this like a soul uh, or, uh, or mind or something like that, right? So we're kind of primarily existing in this mode, but we're groping for something else, right? An interaction across the boundary of that other mode. We also know that our existence now is 
uh, incredibly affected by the entrance of sin into the world, right? Which introduces not only, um, yeah, not only is our mode sort of earthy and, and, and struggling to cross that boundary, but it's also subject now to decay, to death, and to weakness and dishonor. So this is kind of who we are as, as little seeds right now. But Paul, in contrast to this, offers a vision of another mode of existence. And I think to understand this mode, we have to look at Jesus in his resurrection. Right? This is what he says. Jesus is the first fruits of this new way of being. And this is the mode of what he calls the spiritual body. Now, what we can't do is say that the spiritual body, even though it sounds like that to us, is immaterial because he calls it a body, right? In other words, it's not like we exist without a body. It's that our body is something now different or new, existing in another mode. And I think when we look at Jesus, what we can see is exactly this, that Jesus was a kind of hybrid fusion of the two dimensions. <laughs> that he existed in both and participated in both our everyday, earthy dimension as a human, right? And all the glory of being a human, but also that he participated fully in this heavenly dimension as well, right? Have you ever thought about the weird, surprising things about Jesus at his resurrection, right? That he, like, on the one hand, he eats fish. You know, ghosts don't eat fish. He makes that point explicitly, right? I'm not a ghost, I eat fish, he says. And so he's like, he's human, you know? He's got, he's got a human body, he's, and that's glorious, right? But at the same time, Jesus also exists in this heavenly dimension in some way as well. Um, you know, he, he appears and disappears in different places, and in the end, he ascends through the clouds to, to where? Have you ever wondered? Where is Jesus? <laughs> right? He has some body. We know that he is alive, that he, is, uh, that, he, that he has a body and that he's alive. Does that mean he's somewhere, you know, in the universe? You know, somewhere in the vicinity of Beetlejuice or whatever. No, right? I don't, I don't think it's exactly that way that we would think of Jesus just going somewhere else in, in the universe, in like this dimensional universe. I think that the idea is that he exists and he is alive, but he in some way inhabits an, another dimension, right? And so the idea is that in the new creation and that our bodies in some way will be transformed to become a fusion of these two in a very cool way. <laughs> um, I think I'm understanding this. I could be, <laughs> I could be wrong, okay? This is how it's kind of working out in my mind right now uh, over the last, you know, while. Okay, so let's finish this passage. He says, I tell you this, brothers, in verse 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Okay? That's key. This is a mystery. That's why it's hard to understand what we're doing here. He says, we shall not all sleep, that is, be dead, right? But we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. 
for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal uh, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So here he draws on another metaphor. We've had the metaphor of a seed growing into a flowering plant. He also now draws on a metaphor of clothing. When he says put on, this is a clothing word. He says that we, in our seed form, are naked compared to our future form of being clothed. And here again, he's, he's looking back to the Genesis creation story, right? Where Adam and Eve, after they sin, realize that they are naked and they wish to be clothed, right? Because in that moment, they realized that they were subject to weakness and decay and death in their, in their bodies, right? In their mode of existence. And Paul says, the moment when death is going to be really overcome, the moment of victory, is the moment when our bodies are changed not that we escape from them, but, but that they are clothed now with you know, the clothing of this new dimensional existence in some way, so that the perishable now becomes imperishable, and the, immort the mortal puts on immortality. And as I said, for Paul, this is the ultimate victory over death. So in conclusion... What does this have to do with us now? Why should this matter? The reason why this uh, matters is because I don't know if you've ever wondered this, but I wonder this a lot. You know, when I think of the future hope of the new creation and the resurrection, I wonder, what does what I do now as an embodied whole person, how does that affect the future? And I don't know if I fully know the answer to that, but I think what Paul is going to tell us is that it does matter. The way you live now, as a whole person, as a like embodied person, um, you know, your uh, holistic self, that matters in relation to the future. There's some connection between the two, in the same way that there's a connection between a seed and a plant, right? They're the same thing, and the two will relate to each other. So listen to what he says in verse 58, the last verse of this chapter. He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So does what you do matter now as a human in your current mode of existence? Yes. Because somehow you are cultivating the seeds of this world and of yourself and of others that will one day become uh, what they were more fully meant to be. So will you persevere in suffering and in persecution? Yes, you will. Because you know that that perseverance matters and because you hope for victory. Will you deny sin that seeks to entangle you, that others may seek to draw you into? Will you say no to that? Yes, you will. Because you know that the way that you live in your body now matters. That you are cultivating a seed that 
someday will become a plant? Will you continue to labor in the Lord? Care for a friend. Serve those in need. Be faithful in the community of the saints. Even at cost to yourself. Yes, you will. Because your life and labor as an embodied person is not futile in this world. It isn't destined ultimately to decay and to be forgotten. Instead, it's a seed quivering with potential that will one day burst forth into its full flower. Let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the challenge of of, uh, mystery, trying to wrestle with what our future will be like. Lord, I admit that I don't fully understand it really, and... um, Yeah, we don't know how it all works, but Lord, we do um, hope in it. And we're encouraged, Lord, by the idea that in some way, what we live and what we do um, is not done in vain. And we're we're encouraged, Lord, that you give us the hope, ultimately, a hope beyond the grave. A hope that uh, our death isn't death, it's just sleep (laughs) that someday we will wake up from and um, be able to live a new existence in in close relationship with you uh, in a more fully human way than we even imagined. So Lord, help this to affect us, to affect how we live. In Jesus' name, amen.